Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Karen Longebaugh. Karen, welcome to the show. Oh, good good to be back. Thanks. You're the only person who's gotten oh. a repeat <laughs> invitation, so we must have done all right the first time. Uh, we wanted to talk a bit today about uh, what has been termed targeted grazing or sometimes prescription grazing. I'm not sure who coined the term, but the idea is that it's possible in some circumstances and, and maybe also desirable to carefully plan and implement specific timing, duration, and intensity of grazing to achieve a really specific vegetation management goal. And you've done some of the work to get these ideas into the mainstream. Uh, Tell us how you got into the concept of targeted grazing. Uh, Well, as you know, my background is in, I came off of a ranch, so I really was intrigued early on about uh, pasture line contrasts. You know, why, why was something happening on one side and not the other? So that got me interested in diet selection and why animals were choosing what. Uh, so I went into nutrition and worked in uh, animal behavior, and that just kept going. And the real application of understanding animal behavior, of course, is to try to change the ecosystem or to figure out why it changed uh, from whatever grazing event there was. So the targeted grazing was just an effort of me and many others trying to think about how, now that we know something about grazing, could we turn that into a tool? And so targeted grazing came around... Um, about 10 years ago was when the term was was coined. Of course, we've been doing grazing for a long time, and we've been managing it, and we've been affecting the environment. But this is just kind of upping the ante and trying to be more specific. So that's how I got into it, just a real curiosity. Mm-hmm. Fred Provenza calls that interaction a dance, where the environment affects the animal, and the animal also influences the environment. Uh, what we want to talk about is grazing to suppress unwanted plants. And maybe I gave away my definition of a weed, but uh, we often talk about trying to get rid of weeds, whether that's through uh, you know, a mechanical treatment or chemical treatment or, say, a biological treatment with a, a predatory insect that can inhibit reproduction. Uh, what, what would you say a weed is? Uh, well, uh, you gave the most common one is a, a plant that's not wanted where it is at its at, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love Thoreau has he calls he says it's a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll ha- we'll talk a little bit about some values of weeds that are actually beneficial. So there are some virtues to these plants that we hate, but most people understand that what weeds are. And but by the book definition, they're things that have ecological damage to the ecosystem. It, usually, we think often about plants, but also soils, insects, wildlife, livestock, all of those ecological impacts of, of these plants that somehow interfere with the ecology of what we want the land to look like. The other is a real human. Weeds don't exist if it's a human uh, construct. Mm-hmm. So uh, weeds are things that we don't like because they um, they reduce economic uh value or they cost money, one or the other. And then also, uh, don't forget about human health risks and things that happen, um, like poison, hemlock, and those, some of those that can be quite bad for human health. So it's ecological, but it's also a human-based contra- construct. Mm-hmm. Are all of the plants that we don't want 
from somewhere else? In other words, not native to the environment in which we find them, that we're trying to remove them from? Yeah, right. Well, it's the first thing you got to understand when, you know, there's a lot of language when you start talking about invasive plants and weeds and exotic plants. But um, weeds are bad things. And exotic plants would be things that didn't come from around here. They came from somewhere else. We fight a lot of plants that came from Eurasia, for example, because we have a kind of Eurasian climate. And so a lot of plants were pre-adapted to our area. Uh, so those exotics or the ones that are not indigenous to here, th those come over and they either were, came here by on purpose for lots of good reasons. We wanted to bring them over and add some value to the ecosystem or they were brought over and then we found out they were pretty bad either accidentally or on purpose. So uh, not all exotic plants are weeds and not all weeds are exotics. Um, most are. Most of the ones that we spend money on and try to uh, really control are not from North America because the ones in North America have often reached some sort of equilibrium. They're kind of at a level they're not getting to be a lot more. But that's not true with every plant. Uh, the two good examples I can think of that most people would say are weeds, but they're completely native would be junipers and mesquite. Hmm. In, in Southwest, um, yeah, they've been here forever. We, you know, they're completely native, but things have changed. Mostly fire regimes have changed, and now they're getting out of control. So Western juniper, especially the one that we deal with in the Pacific Northwest, way out, way more than we used to have. It's been here all the time. It's a native plant. We just have too much, and it's getting more and more all the time. So the weediness of a plant like that is related to the degree, is related to degree rather than presence. Yeah, yeah, you mean, uh, yeah, the, the the degree in that they... Um, it's only a problem if it's there at a high level. That's right. It, it's a lot of plants can, even even exotic plants, when they come in, sometimes they'll stay in the ecosystem and they're not much problems. They're just they're just kind of there. Right. We don't really get worried about them until they start taking over and pushing other things out. And, and the same, whether a plant's native or exotic, when they start taking over the neighborhood, then we start worrying about them. Yeah, that reminds me of one of the terms that's commonly used in the world of weeds, which is noxious. When we say noxious weed, I think we usually mean that the plant is one that doesn't just peacefully coexist. It, it's one that displaces other things that we would like better. Is but not right? right. That's true. But noxious has a much more specific meaning than that. So noxious weeds are kind of like the 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 worst type of noxious weeds. They're so bad that they're declared by law to be noxious. So the Noxious Weed Act of 1974 was a national act that provided some resources for weeds. This act, we often think of the Noxious Weed Act as the one that declared which plants are on the list, which are mm -hmm. on the you know wanted list. Right. But that weed act did quite a bit more. It provided funding for states and authorities to uh, to. Uh, control weeds. It uh, also required training of people. So that was when we first started realizing that you had to have training to do weed control. Uh, and it it required that agencies and organizations, especially federal agencies, must control weeds that are on that list. But furthermore, anything that's on that noxious weed list, and if you've got it on your property, you must control it, whether you're a federal agency or not. And the, the teeth in the law was that if you don't control it, um, you could face fines, oftentimes, in just costs against your deed. You'll see those as costs from the, the county. The other thing that's kind of cool about that law is that it's national, and then it tears down to state. So we have national uh, noxious weeds, and we have state noxious weeds. So the ones in Washington are a little different than the ones in Idaho. And then some mm -hmm. counties even have 
noxious weeds. Separate uh, list. Yeah, like a Soden County has a very strong noxious weed list where they're really paying attention to the ones in their county. Right. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize that noxious is really just a term that has to do with that noxious weed law, even though they really are kind of bad things. Another thing that I think people get confused when they talk about noxious is they think that most weeds are toxic. Uh, maybe it's because the X in both words, but noxious mm -hmm. and toxic, no. Uh, in fact, most weeds are not not toxic. There's there's far more deadly native plants that are toxic than noxious. So they don't necessarily have to be toxic to be on the noxious weed list. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to something you said earlier, I was trying to think of plants that are exotic, but that we consider desirable. And the first thing that comes to mind is some non-native perennial grasses that we that we plant in places where they're... I call it a, a functional native. They have they occupy roughly the same niche as a native perennial grass would, but they happen to come from somewhere else. Are there some examples of that you can think of? Well, probably the one that I think of first that is probably on your mind is crested wheatgrass. Of course, some people really hate crested wheatgrass, but it's it's a perennial bunch grass. It does stabilize the soil. It's not terribly invasive. Um, many places mm -hmm. you can still see the rows it was planted in 50, 60 years ago. And it's completely naturalized. The, the term I would use is, you know, it's acting native. So it's it's naturalized. It's adjusted to our climate and and uh, our environment really well. So that's the one that really comes to mind. Um, and then there's others that like a, a, a smooth brome is one that uh, it's certainly being natural and it, it's adapted well, but it is starting to increase and is causing a problem in, in many places in the West uh, also, and then there's some that are just stable. The other one that I think of, I'm, now you got me started on grasses, but the one <laughs> that I think of is uh, reed canary grass. Mm. I mean, that that is totally, it's here to stay. And I'm not actually sure why it was introduced, uh, but it is stabilizing stream banks and t and taking cutting out all the other natives, but it's stable. It's adjusted right. to our environment for sure. Yeah, my understanding was that it had come into the Midwest to be used as a hay crop, mm -hmm. but it seems that the variety or the subspecies that lives in the Pacific Northwest is a little bit different, has a higher silica content, and seems to be less desirable than what they have in the Midwest. Yeah, it's but it, it's here to stay. It's naturalized, a really good example of a plant that is mm -hmm. it's acting pretty native, except that it's, uh, it often pushes other plants out. We mentioned in the episode with Kirk Davies on invasive annual grasses that cheatgrass is one that came from the Mediterranean. Uh, it seems like we have quite a few others that came to the Met from the Mediterranean. Are there other parts of the world that we have a lot of invasive plants from? Well, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, certainly a lot came from the Mediterranean because we have a Mediterranean climate. But then every time you start looking at weeds and it says the origin, a lot came from Eurasia. So that sort of highlands country where they had winters in you know, in the south southeastern part of Asia, for example, oh, that's one of the places that cheatgrass uh, probably came as a kind of a sort of mm -hmm. Mediterranean climate. But places that had cold winters for us are usually where we got weeds. Mm -hmm. We have some from Africa. Uh, one that we'll probably talk about is Ventanata, which is uh, maybe uh, Dr. Davies did talk about that mm -hmm. one. It's um, it's a new one on the neighborhood, and it's from Africa. It's also called South Africa grass. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Texas and the Southwest, Southwest, of course, they face a lot of problems with South, you know, African and South American plants because they have a warmer climate and they have warm season plants. But for us, since we are a cooler climate, we're looking mostly at cool season plants that came from Eurasia and and Mediterranean type climates. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for considering grazing as a mechanism to control some of those unwanted species is because it tends to be uh, at a it it can be implemented at lower cost than some of the other measures, especially when we're talking about 
thousands or tens of thousands of acres of rangeland. It's a use that's already there that doesn't require necessarily a lot of additional cost compared to, say, using herbicide on thousands and thousands of acres. Um, but the comment about where plants came from uh, made me think of some of the the different terms that are used in weed suppression. One of them is biological control. Another one is cultural control. And when we say biological control, we're often referring to some biological mechanism like a natural pest organism that would suppress the plant. Can you distinguish between those two? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. But biological control or classical biological control, they, they often call it, is, is really when you have an organism that has just one host. It, it's a It's an all or none mm. deal. So the insects that we introduce to the U.S. as biological control agents, they are exclusive to one species, whatever we introduce them to, spotted knapweed, uh, leafy spurge, etc. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference is they're very exclusive to their host. Uh, well, as you know, sheep and goats and cows, they'll eat a lot of different things. So they are not a, a classical biocontrol. Right. So they fit in that role of cultural, which is a way where we change our normal management to really focus more on invasive plants. Right. And so uh, so you, you mentioned a little bit about if you think about targeted grazing, it does, uh, or any type of grazing to manage weeds, it comes across a large spectrum from just making some small changes, like changing the season when you're in pastures, or, you know, it's not really a big change, or, but you're just going to change the way you sort of do your rotation to try to affect a weed. And that's pretty low cost often because it's just a small change in management. And it can be really effective. Uh, the other side of that is just really targeted, really one very specific goal where you're bringing animals in at a very specific time at, at really specific uh, densities. And um, that, that can actually be quite expensive. So the more specific you get... The, the more expensive it gets. And so grazing right. to manage weeds really comes across that whole continuum. You know, one of the advantages of targeted grazing is that it, it can be used when other things can't. It can be used on really steep terrain where your only other option might be uh, aerial spraying, which is very expensive. Mm -hmm. It's not nearly as dangerous as fire. Prescribed fire can be really <laughs> effective for woody plants, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you can round the cows and sheep up at the end of the season, and you can't always do that with fire. So it's it's a lower mm -hmm. risk than that. It's also a lighter on the ground than mechanical, uh, like big shredders or big mowing types of machines. Um, yeah, sure, cows and sheep and goats have an impact, a hoof impact, but they're not loud. They they don't require, uh, you know, gasoline or, or petroleum products, and they're pretty light on the ground. So they have each of those tools has a, a role, but... Um, cattle and mm -hmm. sheep and goats and targeted grazing is kind of in the middle of that niche. Mm -hmm. When we're using animals to try to control a, a, a weed species, by control we mean that we're trying to reduce the population, inhibit seed production. What are the what are the actual biological mechanisms from the plant perspective that we're trying to interrupt or inhibit or, or affect with the grazing animals? Yeah, good que question. When people think about weed control, they, all, they, you know, they just want it gone. It's like they just want it completely gone. It's, it's really about integrating it and, and what's the level that you can tolerate. So, so when could you get the weed down to a level where the natives or the, your other desirable species could, could live on and the wildlife might not be terribly affected? So there's that kind of mm -hmm. you know, suppression but not complete eradication. Complete eradication is very expensive and, and it's, of course, a goal, but it's seldom a goal of regular cultural types of practices. What we're doing with targeted grazing and other things is just get it down to some level we can live with. And usually that's uh, keeping track of the seeds, keeping the seed production down, 
and uh, and reducing competition. So I think of targeted grazing as just uh, there's two players, the desirables and the undesirables, and you're just trying to nick away at those undesirables and make them less competitive. Mm-hmm. So to take desirables. exactly kind of take the rug out from underneath them. So right. you, you know, for example, grazing long, 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 we've known that grazing reduces root mass if it's done consistently because uh, roots really respond. They really require above ground biomass to, to photosynthesize and give them the carbon they need. So one thing we know is we can use grazing to reduce root mass. That's a great way to reduce competition of an undesirable plant. So I, I don't know, kind of in summary, then I just think that targeted grazing is just trying to nick away at those weeds and make them less competitive. So they're just, they're not going to win the fight that the desirable plants will be winner. And it could happen over a long time, um, but that's all, that's where we're trying to shift the balance. Yeah, that reminds me of some guidelines from Dr. Sherm Swanson regarding riparian grazing, where he says you want more good than bad, where you you could list a couple dozen variables in grazing that may have a, a net positive effect, but a mild one, or a net negative effect in a mild way, and you want to do more of good than bad so that you, in general, shift or tilt the playing field in favor of the plants that you want to keep. Right, tilt the playing field. That's well said. Well, what are some general principles then for for grazing to control weeds? You know, we've got perennial plants, annual plants. If we were talking about herbicide control, you would have different strategies for perennials versus annuals and for grasses versus broadleaf plants. What are some guidelines to start out with? Yeah, guidelines is a good word for it. That's it. The term prescriptive grazing is maybe a little misleading. It's not really very strong <laughs> prescription like you might have with a chemical where you, you follow the guy. Yeah, you, you follow the what's on the label, the prescription. Right. Targeted grazing really is more about guidelines. Uh, again, just trying to shift the balance a little bit uh, and being patient uh, because it's it's just a way of sort of changing what you're doing. And the, I love I love Sherm Swanson's ideas about just try to do a little bit better than not. And in the long run, you'll, you'll come out okay. We didn't get into some of these messes overnight, so we're not going to get out of them overnight. And uh, it, patient, people are not patient. They, and that's why, herb, that's why they love herbicides. You go out and spray and sometimes you can see the difference. You can see those weeds just hanging their heads over the next day. And that's reinforcing. Targeted grazing is more like a, a longer-term commitment and even might be lifetime or, or generations of commitment that we have now. Having said that, there are a lot of things that we do that if we're just patient and uh, and just keep following those guidelines, we can have profound differences. I think about some mm-hmm. cool research that was done in California where all they did was they started using cattle, I think mostly cattle and maybe some sheep, to graze areas that had been invaded by uh, um, Medusa head. And it wasn't like it was terribly prescriptive. It was just kind of graze it in the spring. Mm-hmm. They have done some really good research about showing when exactly should you graze and should you graze once or twice. But there was this study, just, well, just graze sometime in the spring. And they put it all, these plots all the way across California and just really did see some strong reductions in Medusa head, even though we don't think of cattle and sheep as really eating much Medusa head. Right. There's something they do in the ecosystem, maybe nipping it a little or just disturbing it a little that it's changing. So that's just a, a guideline, just mm-hmm. graze it in the spring. A little a little good, more good than bad. Um, or leafy spurge, like the prescription to graze leafy spurge is graze it until you can't see yellow anymore. Well, that doesn't really sound like a recipe, but, but it's a guideline. Mm-hmm. It, it's just something that's worked over time. Um, I, I will say where we got some of these prescriptions, um, 
you'll find on the Targeted Grazing website, targetedgrazing.org, that there's two handbooks. One is the handbook we've been talking about. Another one is called uh, Targeted Grazing Guidelines for Plants. The way we got those early on is we just started calling people. We got on the phone with anybody that said they had used animals to control weeds, and we said, oh, when did you do it? What kind of animal did you use? Mm -hmm. Did you do anything special? How long did you leave them in? And so the the field of targeted grazing grew more out of just people practicing it than actually research. We never could do enough a replicated research with four controls and two treatments. We could never do that um, for every weed that exists. But just people's experience capturing that and getting it up online gives us those guidelines that we talk about. I think that's pretty legitimate. About, I don't know, five or six years ago, Dr. Temple Grandin gave the keynote address at the Society for Range Management. And this was one of her big messages was that we used to do research by observing things in the real world and noticing things that appeared to be causal and then trying to tease those out with more structured research. But that's how that's how good research gets done is by observing things that appear to be true in the real world uh, with people that are actually practicing it and then trying to drill down to determine if it's just association or if there's actually causation there. Yeah. If it works, keep keep doing it. You don't always have to understand why it's working. Now, as a scientist, right. I should probably wash my mouth out with soap because we, we really do need to know the mechanisms below behind something because that will mm -hmm. help us apply it in other places. Um, but Sometimes there's just not enough uh, time or money uh, to, you know, nick out all of those mechanisms. So uh, people's experience on the ground is hugely important. So some of the specific mechanisms with weed control it would include uh, stopping seed production or or consuming seeds before they're spread out on the ground. Uh, could it also include attempting to starve the plant by reducing the amount of you know, leaf area that's available to feed the plant? Yeah, right. If you reduce leaf area, then you reduce root growth if you do it um, consistently. And again, that'll shift the balance back to your desirable plants. Uh, reducing seed production is very important. Sometime, somehow making them more vulnerable to the environment. Um, this, you, as you know, there's some new research out about winter grazing of cheatgrass, and it, it turns out it is, it is fairly effective in drier climates. And it's not because we're, the animals are eating the, it, it turns out I don't think it's because they're eating the cheatgrass. It's because they're eating other things that are making the environment less um, less favorable for germination. So uh, sometimes it's changing the environment in a way so it's just less favorable for the growth, and sometimes it's actually having a direct effect on the plant, uh, either through seeds or biomass. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you heard the episode with Dr. Kirk Davies, but this was one of the things they're trying to drill into at the Burns Research Station uh, with invasive annual grass is this this fall and winter grazing, uh, one of the mechanisms that they believe is effective is disrupting the litter layer, you know, one that provides a, a safe place for all of these uh, invasive grass seeds to germinate. The other is that uh, having that litter layer or a persistent thick litter layer prevents everything else from getting a foothold. Right. No, they're doing some great work down there at the ARS in Burns. And Dr. Davies is certainly right at the forefront of that. What's interesting, though, what you said about um, sometimes learning things, that learning that they work out on the ground and then figuring out why. And that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, a few researchers in Nevada 
uh, found out that, gee, just sort of they've talked to some people and they said, well, that winter grazing thing keep, it seems to work. So they started just trying it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it worked. But they had really had no idea why. And it's uh, Kirk Davies and, and their crew that that's really figuring out the why. Now, once we figure out why, it might help us understand other other plants, annual, mm-hmm. more annual grasses or other annual plants. Mm-hmm. The other upside of that winter grazing is that it tends to be really beneficial for the perennial native bunch grasses. Yeah, yeah, right, because they're dormant. Right. You, you, you know, you can't hurt them. At, well, you can hurt them by removing so very close to the base, but right. by, by and large, they're v- very tolerant of grazing in the winter. It's like standing hay. Yeah, uh, and the other uh, the other thing that's useful if you're grazing in the fall or winter, and this is, you know, is, everyone knows this, is, you know, you, you know how much biomass you have. You don't, you're not guessing about how much growth you're going to get. You know what you have, so you can stock pretty carefully, and, and you can make pretty good guesses about how many animals you need. And so that's also kind of useful. Um, Barry mm-hmm. Perryman is the professor at University of Nevada, Reno, that really started seeing this and seeing if it would work. And um, yeah, he's pushing the bar. And uh, who'd have thought that after for a hundred, we've been dealing with cheatgrass over a hundred years. And who'd have thought that now we have some new ideas on how to deal with cheatgrass? You know, one one risk in in targeted grazing is forcing animals to eat something that could be harmful <clears throat> to them or is harmful if they eat it in excessive amounts, um, you know, or they, or they get too much poor quality feed. Talk about targeted grazing from the animal's perspective and things that we have to watch out for to avoid overdoing it because they're not just um, biological combines. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I love that targeted grazing is this nice mix of animal husbandry and plant knowledge, you know, so you can't be a good targeted grazer if you don't understand the plants when they're susceptible to grazing, how nutritious they are, if they're toxic, and then also the desirable plants when they're susceptible to grazing. So you got to know that sort of plant ecology, but you also have to be a good animal person. You got to know about animal husbandry. You got to be watching animals. They'll tell you when things are getting tough. And as you know from the your uh, your discussion with Fred Provenza, that you know the animals are smarter than us about what to eat or what not to eat. Mm-hmm. We, it's hard for us to poison an animal in, in a setting. They, they can usually figure it out. There are, of course, some that, they, that are quite toxic. But as far as weeds, um, there are very few that are just deadly. They just have these secondary mm-hmm. compounds that reduce their palatability. So what we see most with targeted grazing is just some weight loss. So when if good targeted grazers have to let go of the idea that they're trying to have some weight gain or some beautiful heavy animals, they're using the animals for a different purpose. So rather than producing meat, they're trying to, to manage the ecosystem. That comes at a price usually of weight gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, um, good targeted grazers also um, make sure there's plenty of minerals because that detoxification system inside the animal requires quite a few minerals to be really um, up mm. and going. And since most weeds have some anti-quality factor, uh, then the animals have to deal with that. Um, I say most weeds have anti-quality factors. If, if they didn't, if they were completely delicious and nutritious, they probably wouldn't be weeds. <laughs> so the ones that right. we deal with the most are the ones that have, are some reason animals don't like them. And so Good animal husbandry, understanding the animal, making sure they have the nutrients and the minerals that they need and plenty of water. Uh, then it's just a matter of kind of letting go of your goals for production and focus on your goals for the environment. Mm-hmm. Those plants are invasive because they either have extremely effective reproductive strategies or they successfully avoid grazers or they're um, 
resistant to the kind of grazing that they would ordinarily receive and can still reproduce and flourish? Are there other mechanisms that would make an invasive species, you know, particularly uh, invasive and resistant to grazing control? Yeah, the other two that I think that are two or three that I think are important when we think about uh, noxious and, and invasive plants is uh, one, at least in the Pacific Northwest, several of our, our plants are problems because they uh, they get an edge on the native plants. So they're uh, over their annuals that are winter annuals. Uh, we in, we didn't have na name winter annuals native to North America. Mm -hmm. There's just not very many in our neck of the woods. So when plants came like cheatgrass or yellow star thistle or others came in and they were winter annuals, they survived over the winter. They were there ready to go in the spring. So one thing that weeds, some of the weeds that we face are worse is because of their ability to get a jump and use the nutrients and the moisture before the natives kind of wake up from the winter. So timing is is a big a big one. And then also uh, many of the invasive plants we have are just really good at seed dissemination. I'm thinking about um, hound's tongue. Mm -hmm. Man, that plant was just designed to spread seeds all over. And not many native plants are as good at that game. Mm -hmm. So they're really good at producing a lot of seeds, Getting them to other places, uh, the seeds are generally um, they fit, uh, disturbance favors them. So hooves and, and areas that are disturbed are favored, and then they often get a, a jump on the game because they are overwintering and they're there when the moisture is there. Mm -hmm. We don't have time for a thorough discussion of a lot of specific problem plants across the country and whether grazing can be effectively used to control them, but we can discuss some of the ones that are common to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, what what specific weed species do you see that are a direct threat to either rangeland health or, uh, you know, ranch economics uh, in the Northwest? Um, well, I'm glad you talked to Dr. Davies because the three that he's working on, cheatgrass, medusa head, and ventanata, are certainly high on my list. They're, they're problematic because they do uh, they do come in and invade and actually push out the natives. And then especially because cheatgrass and how it fuels the fire cycle, which is another downside to some weeds is they change the fire cycle. So they're, they're high on my list, but we won't talk a lot about those. Other ones that I think targeted grazing can be used more for that are a problem are yellow star thistle, for example, across hmm. all the west from California uh, now and right up to the Rockies. Uh, Rush skeleton weed, another problem because it has that very, that seed that can just go for miles. It can get into these wind cycles and, and be spread for miles. A leafy spurge is bad. It has that underground root structure that is really pernicious, just really aggressive. White top, man, you go to some places in Oregon and you just think that you, you just came across a lake. It's so white. It's just white top. And that plant, that's a real challenge. It can really come in and become monocultures. Hound's tongue I mentioned, I don't like that one just because it does spread up in some of the higher elevations. So those are some of the forbs that I think we should be paying a lot of attention to. They've been with us for ah, 40 years now. We've been working at them, uh, but they're, they're going to be around for a while longer. So the million-dollar question is, have any of those been effectively controlled by grazing? Are there any success stories with those big problem plants? Uh, the, the one that I think is most that if you want to try to get rid of with grazing is leafy spurge. You, we can be very successful. Not that it's easy, but man, I've seen some before and after pictures where it's the sheep, there are certain breeds of sheep, there are certain kinds of leafy spurge that are really delicious to sheep. There was a pretty cool study done in uh, Montana a number of years ago where they, uh, Barb Landgraf did some, a study where she had some sheep on a leafy spurge infested pasture and then on a native pasture. And of course, 
our assumption would have been that the, the sheep would have come back heavier and happier and healthier off the native, and it turned out it's the other way. The, the leafy spurge mm -hmm. was really quite nutritious for those sheep, so they mm -hmm. came back even heavier than if they'd have been on the uh, native pasture. They like it. Uh, cows don't. Uh, goats can be very effective also, and it, it depends on the species, the breed, and the kind of spurge. It looks like for example, spurge in, spurge in Montana and North Dakota seems more palatable than some of the spurge that we have in Idaho. Um, but you can find a lot of fence line contrasts where livestock came in uh, right when it was flowering, uh, grazed off that those seed heads, the, the flowering bracts, those yellow bracts. And once you quit seeing the yellow, take them away until you see it again, bring them in again. Hmm. Until you, and over not just a few years, four or five years, you can see really rapid reductions I don't know if it's going on anymore, but just to keep talking about leafy spurge for a minute, uh, when they when we first started realizing how effective sheep could be at controlling leafy spurge, there were cooperatives in uh, cattle cooperatives in Montana that started hiring sheep producers to do their weed control. Wow. They were not going to become sheep guys. That was clear. They were going to be cattle guys, and they had no intention of getting sheep and becoming sheep guys. But they would um, form a cooperative and bring sheep onto their property because their property was much more valuable to their cattle. They had more forage when the sheep came in and removed the spurge than if they weren't there. I'm not sure if those cooperatives are still going, but it was a pretty cool idea of kind of two species and two total different lifestyles uh, taking advantage of both of these opportunities because of the species. So I keep talking about species. That's one other really important thing about targeted grazing is that, that the species of animals is really important and the background of the animal is important. Because they have distinct foraging preferences. That's right. So I went down this road on, I've done some pretty interesting research on yellow star thistle. Because I hate yellow star thistle. <laughs> There's just very few good things about it. Although... Who wouldn't? Yeah, well, honey's good. <laughs> the honey, the star thistle honey. But other than that, I, I, I don't like yellow star thistle. It's not good for, for people and generally for livestock. And it, it is one of those winter annuals that can take over and remove some, kind of outcompete some of the native grasses mm -hmm. and then increase erosion and just all those bad ecological factors. But we have a lot of it up here in the Snake River Plains. And I thought, well, I wonder why cows and sheep don't eat it. We got a lot of cows and sheep. Why don't we see if they eat it? So I'd, my first round of studies was to look at the plant when it was bolting uh, or when it was in rosette and then bolting and then flowering to see when, when in the plant's life cycle would it be most palatable and most susceptible to grazing. And then I used cattle and sheep because we had some at the university and I found some ranchers that would help me and we had some cattle and sheep. And it turns out Cows and sheep don't like yellow star thistle. They, they eat it, mm. um, and it is quite nutritious when they eat it. But you can't. They you couldn't. The more you um, grazed the star thistle, the more basal buds would be stimulated on that star thistle, and in the mm. end, you'd have more flowers than you had before. So we never reduced the biomass or the number of flowers with cattle and sheep. So I was about fit to be tied, ready to give up. And then a, a friend of mine who runs a, a targeted grazing. Um, group said, hey, well, Karen, why don't you try this? So he said, try some goats. I was like, come on, I've beat my head against the wall long enough. Why would I try goats? But he was persuasive. And so we um, we did use some goats out uh, on white bird grade, and they were super effective. Mm -hmm. We put the goats in right even when it was in that, that spiny flower seed time, and the goats just munched on it. So um, right species. It we got them on late. We didn't want to put them on when it was flowering, but it, that turned out to be the right time because at that time, most of the native grasses were kind of past seed set. So this was in August and the, the yellow star thistle was flowering and those goats went in and just ate those seed heads off, which were really high in energy and nutritious and they didn't touch the grass. So after just a few years of that, we had grass coming 
more grass and more forbs and less like 80% less seed heads on yellow star thistle. Wow. So, so they'd select for it and you didn't necessarily have to concentrate them so far that they were just removing everything down to bare dirt, including that. They would pick it out. No, absolutely. They they absolutely favored it uh, wow. more than the native plants, uh, the native forbs. Even they favored the yellow star thistle over mm. the native forms. So we got the we got the sort of guideline right. We got the plant at the right time, and we got the right animal. So cattle and sheep not effective. If you want to increase the amount of yellow star thistle, you could do it with cattle and sheep. Um, but goats, easy. That, that worked really well. Now we just need a million of them. Yeah, we we do, and they take they <laughs> use really high really. Um, a large country too, mm. uh, so that's good. the The group that I worked with was the uh, prescribed sp- prescribed grazing services. Um, I'm gonna, Is that Ray Holes? Yeah, Ray Holes, uh, okay. who does that, and he was out of White Bird, and I think he still does some work around here. And he certainly is a master that uh, combined the science, but also uh, his own experience. And um, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have tried it. But um, there's a lot of people that do use goats quite effectively on yellow star thistle. So that's one. Those are two that I think, yeah, hands down, if you get the right animal in the right time and the right people, you, you can make a difference on that. Um, just truth in advertising, there's some that are going to be really hard. Um, white, white, white top or hoary crest. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know people have tried goats, um, and, but I've just not seen much success on that. That's a really tough one because it has such a rigorous under, you know, underground root system. Mm-hmm. So that one isn't going to happen. Oh, and then also uh, woody plants. We don't have a lot of woody plants that are noxious weeds in the West, but the one that comes to mind is, is uh, salt cedar. That's a bad one. And salt is so aversive to animals. Animals can only Consume use so much. so much. There's a really high top line on that, that it's really hard to do targeted grazing of salt cedar. Uh, so that that's a tough one. And um, Himalayan blackberry, blackberry we're, we're having more of that. It can be, you know, animals can eat it, uh, but that takes a little bit of skill. <laughs> to get rid of that Himalayan blackberry. Mm-hmm. So, I know Craig Madsen, who has the business uh, west of Spokane Healing Hooves, does quite a bit of blackberry control uh, in places like uh, ritzy neighborhoods in Seattle where they'll bring the goats in and they'll just defoliate the plants. Yeah, and Craig, is he's also a master at He knows what to do when and and uses goats, both goats and sheep, I think, but he's been very effective on blackberry and other woody plants on that side of the Rockies or on that side of the, the state on the east side. It seems like targeted grazing takes quite a bit of thinking and a lot of work. Is it is it possible to avoid these invasions in the first place if we manage right? Or is it just a connected world and there's going to be stuff running around? Wow, you know, that that is that's a good question. Think about that the other way around. Um, think about some weeds that we we wouldn't have if we had been grazing with, with in certain ways. And the, the example I think of is uh, leafy spurge has gone up radically since the um, 80s, probably when I first started really seeing it. And what happened in the 80s to the sheep industry when we lost the wool incentive and we started really seeing a loss in the sheep? So the number of leafy spurge plants has gone up in complete opposite of the sheep numbers. Mm -hmm. And many people showed me that graph and said, wow, hmm, there might be a correlation here. If we'd have just kept the sheep on the ground, maybe they were always keeping it Mm -hmm. at a low level. And it turns out grazed pastures, pastures that are grazed with by sheep do have less leafy spurge, uh, just just naturally. So if grazing is keeping it out, sort of whether we know it or not. I guess another example right. I'll give, um, There, I was on a ranch tour um, on the kind of the footlands above Boise, those foothills above Boise, and we went across an area that had very little cheatgrass. And I thought, wow, that's interesting because it seems like this would be a great place for cheatgrass. And I asked the rancher why he thought 
he didn't have cheatgrass there. And Charlie Lyons was the rancher. He says, well, it's because I graze this every spring on my way up to my upper country. So just by grazing every spring, not heavily, mm -hmm. just grazing across it as he's up to his upper country, he felt that he could, had kept the uh, cheatgrass mm -hmm. to a lower level. And I think that's true, uh, that just sort of by always keeping it, nipping it down. So I think by, especially by grazing with sheep and goats or by grazing well in the, in the winter or the, or the spring, maybe we don't have as many weeds as, as we could. So one thing is there might be, if we're doing grazing right and we're keeping the healthy, the community healthy and the natives are competitive, we might have some weeds that aren't moving in and we'll never know. Like this is a problem right. with weed control. You'll never know if you were successful because the reward is that you didn't have weeds. That's a terrible reward, but that's, that's your reward is that you didn't have weeds. Another thing that we need to think about for weeds is always really think about how, how are those weeds getting into the property? Mm -hmm. So um, preventing them, looking at travel corridors, looking at the weeds that, that are next door that are down the windscape that might come onto the property and really paying attention to that. Um, and then making sure that your animals aren't coming onto your property. If you're moving up in higher elevation and coming back down to your base property, make sure you're not bringing weeds with you. Mm -hmm. That's relatively easy to do. Keeping animals on, say, for example, old hay fields for a couple of days, let the weeds pass their digestive tract, let them kind of shake off those weeds before you put them back on. Weeds don't last, uh, most weeds don't last a long time in the digestive tract. Of course, seeds are energy for the animal, so they generally digest mm -hmm. nearly all of them. Some of the studies that I've done show that just fractions of a percent of seeds that, that we fed to animals came out viable. Hmm. So in general, they're collecting up seeds and they're making them less viable. There are some exceptions to that. But so paying attention to how weeds are getting onto your property is really important. And then the, also just paying attention to your property. You know, because you work with ranchers too, that uh, w they know their plants. They know when something comes in that's unfamiliar. Uh, I often get calls from people that they say, hey, I, you know, I got this plant. It's on, it's on the, the, uh, the, the dash of my pickup, you know. And, right. and uh, there are certain places where you can send them and have them look. Or I, when I'm at people's, we'll look. I'm sure you do too. Because they notice when something's new. So just right. noticing. Early detection and rapid response. Absolutely. Uh, so that so by, by paying attention in, in those corridors. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that targeted grazing is probably not for that early detection rapid response. Uh, when you find new weeds and you know they're a weed, then get the most powerful tool you got, an herbicide, usually, and get rid of them. Uh, targeted grazing would be more once you've gotten to the level where, man, you've got all these weeds and you need to do something with them. And the other options are too expensive. Yeah. and or, or But the other advantage of targeted grazing is you can turn it from a weed to a feed. Mm -hmm. So you're still sustaining an operation. Um, it, sometimes you'll pay a hit in, in gain, weight gain, but mm -hmm. you're still turning that weed, that, that thing that's not valuable to you, into something that is. Uh, and that's where targeted grazing really, I think it really has a big niche right there. You mentioned the Targeted Grazing Handbook that's available at the website. Was the website targetedgrazing.org? Mm -hmm. That's okay. right. Uh, one of the one of the chapters in there lists um, a lot of this, a lot of common weeds and some some specific recommendations for how to manage those through targeted grazing. And I was intrigued to find juniper in there. I would not have guessed that juniper was one that you could very effectively control. Uh, what what would the control mechanism look like for juniper? Okay, I can tell you why you weren't thinking of it as being edible. Is because the juniper that we have in the West is Western juniper, Occidentalis. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of terpenes on the leaf surface, which are really aversive to animals. So it's really, it's chocked full of these terpenes. 
what we know most about juniper control comes from Texas, mm -hmm. where they have blueberry and redberry juniper, which have le much less of these terpenes. So mm -hmm. most of what we know about using livestock to manage right. juniper comes from there. Uh, now, having said that, some of the principles we know is um, that uh, certainly animals ha that have uh, good detoxification systems can can use those terpenes. Hmm. Uh, John Walker down at the um, Texas A&M Experiment Station near San Angelo, he's actually been breeding one line of goats that um, are big juniper eaters and one that are not, and they're diverging so that the the um, ones that eat a lot of juniper or eat like four, five, six times more than a non-juniper eater. Hmm. So there's something that they inherit in that digestive system probably that well, allows they tolerate them. tolerate more. Yeah, that's right. They either process it or they just tolerate it. Not right. sure which. Uh, it helps if they start young. It helps if they are have good nutrition. That's an interesting thing. A lot of people think you starve animals onto weeds. In the case of mm -hmm. juniper, you have to entice them on, and generally you entice them on with protein. Mm -hmm. Protein and some energy gives them what they need to kind of really ramp up their system and eat those terpenes and process them or, or get rid of them. Uh, so we know quite a bit about using goats. Um, haven't seen much success with cattle or sheep, but goats can be quite successful. Now, we come fast forward to Oregon and the area that we deal with those West, with Western juniper. There are some people that are doing things like when they're, um, when they're housing goats in the winter, just throw some old juniper trees in there. Just, just chop them down and throw them in there because as they, they get dry, they lose a lot of those terpenes and animals might start nippling on them. Plus, hmm. when they're in dry lot, they're, they're bored, so they might try some more. And it might ramp up that system for detoxification. So I haven't completely given up on targeted grazing of western juniper, but it's a, it's a lot tougher deal. Uh, so it is – but having said that – what about what about how many little trees there are out there that the goats are going along? They might eat take those little off. trees. Mm -hmm. We may never know. They may not take down those big trees that we, that are across the landscape, but maybe they're eating little ones and keeping the density down. So I think we have a lot to learn, and that just having some animals in the system at the right time might really keep the density of junipers down. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not going to solve the big junipers that are taking over the landscape. Speaking of shrubs. In parts of Washington state, sagebrush actually reproduces quite well, mm -hmm. sometimes to the exclusion of other stuff that you would like to have. And I've been asked a number of times, you know, what are some recommendations for how a person could thin out sagebrush? Not eliminate it, but, but thin it out. Um, I believe the Nature Conservancy had some trials out for a little while in central Washington trying to spray molasses on sagebrush to entice animals to eat it. Uh, they were also trying to do that sometimes in the winter. And, of course, it's a little difficult to get molasses to spray in the wintertime. <laughs> and, and what they found, I guess, incidentally, was that they got more canopy reduction from the animals stomping around through the sagebrush when it was really cold outside and the plants were more brittle. Uh, has there been any other work done to try to get animals to eat sagebrush, maybe something besides a cow? And is that effective? Yeah, there's actually been quite a bit done on, on sagebrush. And and I think it is a good tool for kind of thinning out sagebrush stands and not just mulling them over and just shredding them down. Right. Um, don't underestimate the power of the hoof. Uh, you know, feeding animals on sagebrush in the winter might be one way to kind of tromp some of that down and kind of rejuvenate it. It's pretty small scale, but it can be useful in certain places. Um, the, I've done some – I'm sorry, I said juniper. Was, I'm talking about sagebrush now, tromping it down. Right. But um, – I've done some work in looking at the terpenes in sagebrush, and it really, they really do become less abundant in the winter. So we often see animals hmm. shift their diet to sagebrush later in the fall. And so we'll see increased amount of, uh, 
of sagebrush eaten in the fall and winter than in the spring and summer. Maybe it's partly because there's other things available, but also the terpenes are, are becoming less. We also know that sheep inherit the ability to um, detoxify terpenes. It's about... Mm. Uh, well, I think we talked about this earlier. The EPD um, is like 25% inheritability on that. So sheep that eat a lot of uh, sagebrush will pass that on to their young that will eat more sagebrush. So the ideas of, of getting more animals eating sagebrush could happen. I'm surprised that molasses worked. I'm not to say that it wouldn't because animals do like that energy source, but I tend to think about a more important is, is protein. So at least having mm -hmm. a combination of those. And uh, Roger Banner and Bur Beth Bird out of Utah State did some really cool research where they fed animals. It was a grain and uh, um, protein diet. And then they, then they let them out onto range, and they ate a lot more sagebrush than mm -hmm. if they were not not uh, supplemented. So again, enticing animals onto sagebrush instead of instead of starving them onto it. Mm -hmm. um, also, I've I've done some work with animals in age and uh, body condition, and young animals that are in uh, kind of thinner young animals will eat more than older fat animals. So paying a little attention to what animals you have out there and what you're using for management. But yeah. I I really think we could have significant effects uh, of using animals, sheep or goats to control or to manage sagebrush. Not 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 stop it, not cut it down, but just kind of open it up, get some more plants between there, get some forbs in there and and, and revive that system. And then having said that, I think you and I talked earlier about um, great systems have more insects. And so we're worried about sagebrush, of course, because we want um, birds like sage grouse and sage thrashers. and That rely on pollinators. Yeah. And so insects that they eat for diets, but also pollinators. And so have, that might kind of be a side benefit of having grazed animals in the ecosystem. Yeah. Speaking of pollinators, I wanted to go back to our discussion about biological control insects. Uh, at least with a couple of problem weed species like knapweed, in the Pacific Northwest, there's some fairly mature efforts to get biological control insects out there, and and those have been fairly effective. That that's been happening for long enough that we can see the results from that. A lot of times, the recommendations for people who are using these these control insects is that uh, you shouldn't have grazing in places where you've put out the insects and would like them, you know, to be feeding on the plant population. How commonly is that a conflict? And and should we be concerned about that? Yeah, certainly. When when you've gone to all the energy and effort to get um, biological controls and release them onto a property, you're really afraid of letting animals come in there and, and disturb them. And there are some reasons why that might be bad. For example, if you have uh, uh, insects that are um, attacking the seed head and we know right. that animals are going to come in, they're going to like those flowers. You've got to leave the seed heads. Uh, however, there is another side of that story. So I, I see where that comes from. Just logically, it sounds like, oh my gosh, we really want those those insects to do their job. The other side is um, when we talk about sort of prey-predator relationships, remember the, the overlapping curves. Mm -hmm. The predator will go up until the prey gets on top of it. And then, I'm sorry, the, the, yeah, and then the, the predator gets on top of the prey and it, and it goes down. Right. So one theory has been that grazing might be that predator that would reduce some of those seed heads so that the biocontrol agents could get on top of the prey quicker. Mm. In other words, so that they, these two animals, the insect and the sheep or the goat, could be working in tandem. Right. And that could be really beneficial. There is a couple threads of research that say that that's true. Um, it's probably more useful in stem or uh, root boring uh, mm. 
critters. So and that, seed head weevils. Yeah. Just to spell that out, you're saying that if animals graze some of the seed heads, that reduces the total number of seed heads or plants out there so that the amount of insects are sufficient to get to all of them instead of just a small portion of them. That's right. And okay. so that, that we might... As long as we're not, um, as long as the sheep aren't eating the the insects, you know that's that's the thing we right. don't want to have happen. Uh, the research that I mentioned about yellow star thistle that we did in the Snake River Plains, it was actually just overlooking Lewiston. Um, what we also had a graduate student, Linda Wilson was the professor, and a graduate student uh, that worked on looking at insects. So they actually had cages in our grazed pastures where they were looking to see. Um, if insects were affected by our grazing treatments. And they looked at four biocontrol agents of yellow star thistle, uh, insects that were uh, introduced to try to get rid of star thistle, and then across all their grazing treatments. And in another, none of our treatments did we ever see an effect of the grazing animal on reducing mm. the viability or the number of insects. Uh, and there was also a really good study, probably the best evidence of, um, say, large herbivores working with those little insects together, ha came out of Montana and North Dakota, where they um, they found that animal or leafy spurge that was grazed by insects, in this case flea beetles, uh, was effective. Leafy spurge grazed by sheep was effective, but when you graze them both together, it was even more effective. So there was a synergistic effect. Mm. So we're kind of going a little bit into the haze here. Um, but I'm not as afraid uh, of in, including grazing with those biocontrol agents because there could be some benefit. Um, I just would say, yeah, proceed with caution <laughs> because mm -hmm. we don't want to make a situation where those animals are really sort of attacking the insects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the world of integrated pest control, which uh, is, is more commonly referred to, I guess, in the world of cropping systems, you know, they say that the first step is to know your pest and to know, you know, its biological cycles and how you can manipulate that. Uh, in in chapter 15 of this targeted grazing manual, uh, the authors write that grazing for weed control is a meticulously honed and finely skilled practice. Should we not try this at home? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think the reason that that was written was because we're trying to distinguish it between sort of just uh, run-of-the-mill everyday garden variety grazing, that right. there is something more to it and that target on the environment. So... Uh, so it is kind of you're changing your scope, and you can get people can get really good at it. You know, play, people like Ray Holes and um, Craig Batson are really good. They're they're skilled. They're skilled workmen at mm -hmm. that, and they're very good. Uh, the other thing is, it's not terribly dangerous. So I'd say try it. See what right. see what works. But make sure you monitor. Make sure you see if it's working. Put a cage out. Get a fence line. Just see if what you're doing is really really working. Uh, and so. It's not. It's not like chemicals or um, or fire that I think could get out of control. Mm -hmm. You really have the reins all the way through targeted grazing, and we're not mm -hmm. going to learn more about it unless people just give it a try. Right. Uh, and but I really think it's important to do the monitoring. I, you know, I can't emphasize that enough. Everything we do, we get these good ideas. Let's see if they're really working or not. Mm -hmm. uh, we did some studies with sheep on uh, on. Uh, Napweed, spotted napweed, out in eastern Idaho once, quite a long time ago. And we saw these beautiful fence lines. Like we could, here was where the sheep were, no purple seed heads, it's all looking good. Here's where the sheep weren't. But we measured meticulously the density of, uh, of napweed plants. plants. We never affected the napweed plants hmm. in those studies. We didn't make it any worse. I mean, maybe the upside is the grazing, they were able to get nutrients out of it, which is more than just letting it go. And they may have given the grass a little bit of an edge. We saw some increase in grasses in the grazed area because the sheep were focusing on the spurge, but we never affected the spurge. So, you know, you got to pay attention. 
it's not that it was bad. Nothing went bad there, but we didn't have the effect that we thought we did. Mm -hmm. So having a monitor, doing a little monitoring, it doesn't have to be a scientific study. Mm -hmm. Cage here and there, a fence line, a few before and after pictures, and I think it helps a lot. So I'm all for citizen science on this one. We are just not going to learn the right methods. And I still maintain that the real world is much more complicated than rocket science. You know, people <laughs> yeah. observe that from year to year, things like knapweed and cheatgrass and, and other, uh, especially annual weeds, seem to vary tremendously in how much they're expressed in a given year in response to factors that I'm not even sure we, we know what they are. But, you know, some years people say it was a good nap, knapweed year. Well, what they mean is a lot of knapweed showed up sometimes in places we didn't know we had knapweed. <laughs> And then the next year it was gone. Yeah. And there were no obvious influences like grazing, moving seed around or something that could account for that that flush. Yeah, just like on the native range, dynamics is the name of the game. And not only um, place to place, or year to year, but place to place. Um, we're finding mm -hmm. more that the weed population that might be found in this county in Oregon might be different than the one that's found in Montana, just because of the way that those weeds came into the ecosystem. So I gave the example of leafy spurge. Seems to work. Sheep and goats do really well on it in Montana, North Dakota, not so much in Idaho and Oregon. Still effective, but it's just a different plant, different mm -hmm. setting, different critters. So if I was attempting to summarize, I would say that if with a target with a target weed population, you want to match up palatability with susceptibility, palatability of the animal, and then susceptibility of the plant to being killed or having the seed head, uh, you know, seed, seed production reduced match up palatability and susceptibility, and then don't kill your cows. Yeah. Don't do it in well, a way that's bad for your animals. Well, I, I, be so. careful. I mean, I think the animals are your tool in this case. They're not these production right. things that are going to – don't think of them as meat so much as as tools for vegetation. Men. I would never uh, – I mean, I've never been in an operation where I thought the animals were being mistreated in targeted grazing. So mm -hmm. you got to pay attention to that. But I would – I guess I would phrase it just a little differently, that the game is not all about the weeds. So mm -hmm. pay attention to – the palatability and susceptibility of the weed, but also to what you want to succeed out there. So in a perfect world, you would right. find a time when the weed was palatable and susceptible, and at, at that same time, the native plants might not be. They, they might not be susceptible to grazing, or they might be more palatable. Like grazing cheatgrass in the wintertime. Yeah, or in the spring, right up to spring. the time when the, mm -hmm. those other native plants bolt. Uh, we found with uh, spotted knapweed, there was a really kind of a nice sweet spot where the, by the, right after the, um, the grasses produced seed, when they became less susceptible to grazing and also less palatable because they were more just standing cellulose, that was when the, the knapweed came into to, – it started to bloom. Mm -hmm. The animals could eat it. It was tall. It was delicious. Palatable. So there was just that one little window where we could be pretty darn effective with grazing. And so it's just a timing thing. Uh, and it ain't easy because there's not usually just one weed and one plant that you want. There's this whole myriad of plants. Mm -hmm. So that's where the art, we, we talk, this is called the art of, of range science. This is the art. That's where the art comes in is it's this, all of these pieces on the chess table and, and trying to find a way that you can find that sweet spot. Uh, and again, I, I say don't pay attention to the, only the weeds because um, Remember, it's just about shifting that balance to the to the native plants. You just need to shift it a little. Let them do the rest of the job. And always, you have your eye on the weed. You might find a time that you can graze the weed, but that what what time is that for your desirable plants? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I don't I, I don't I do worry about animals, but I do think of them more as tools. You got to change your mindset when you're doing targeted grazing. 
um, you know, I, I hear stories about, you know, the have goat will travel kind of sign people that, you know, they just think this is going to be easy or people that call and say, hey, I've got a lot of this oxide daisy and it's just driving me crazy. Do you know someone who could come over and graze it? I got some free forage for them. Targeted grazing is not about free forage. It's just a whole lot more complex. And that's why you need that honing and skilling. It's it, you need the right animal at the right time with the right goal. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about bringing any old animal in. Uh, and any old business card will do and throw them in there. That just, that can do a little more harm than good. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about the Targeted Grazing Handbook, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, where else could people find good information on grazing towards specific vegetation management goals? Uh, th that handbook is on the uh, Targeted Grazing website, which is maintained by the Targeted Grazing Committee of the Society for Range Management. Mm. And on that website, we have um, several uh, videos, like we have a series of five videos that just kind of track some of the chapters in that in the handbook, but show you what do you need to know about the animal, what do you need to know about the plant, uh, what do you need to know about monitoring, this kind of track you through the pieces. So if you're just starting out in Targeted Grazing and you need kind of the Targeted Grazing 101, Listen to those videos. They're by uh, folks like myself and Rachel uh, Frost and John Walker and and others just kind of tracking you through. We also have some other uh, webinars that are on uh, livestock and wildlife interactions and some things that you have to pay attention to in the larger environment. Uh, also, again, on I'm sorry, just plug the website. The website also has the... Um, the, the prescriptions, the, the document where we called people and said, hey, when does it seem to work for you? Right. Um, I would love to see a time in the future where that site might open up sort of a wiki media site where people could call in or write in and say when it did work for them, because I think we somehow need to all bring our, our ideas to the table and our understanding. Um, so right now, there's that is that is probably, I'd say, the best place to go. It's where I go. And, uh, and any other ideas, you can just go ahead and add a note in there and uh, and hopefully we'll respond to you and try to move in the right direction. I just want to say a couple more things that um, don't always think about it as just killing weeds. On that on the website, you'll see it's also about creating fire breaks. I think there's a lot we can do with targeted grazing in this fire world, and that's where cows and, and horses might really be coming. They might be handy. Uh, and then also I'm seeing a lot of new stuff on restoration, using those, that hoof impact to plant seeds and kind of do that disturbance, which usually disturbance is a bad thing, but when you're trying to restore an area, it might be just what you need. So think broadly, it's not just one animal and one weed, it's that whole ecosystem, it's the right animals at the right time, in the right place, and really changing your, the way you think about it. Uh, so I do hope that people will, uh, will look at the Targeted Grazing website, which is by the Society for Range Management Targeted Grazing Committee, it's at uh, targetedgrazing.org, that'll get you there. Okay. Karen, thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure, and I, I do hope people will write in and, and send some comments back with their ideas on this and other topics. Very good. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. 
This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.